garbage. It's a global problem, but some communities in the Philippines are overwhelmed by it. Waste, much of it plastic, clogs waterways and endangers people's health. This year, at World Vision Canada's Social Innovation Challenge, five teams of Canadian entrepreneurs will present solutions to this problem in the form of sustainable businesses. The winners will receive $25,000 to make their solution a reality. Want to watch teams compete and talk social finance and impact investing? Join us on June 19th in Toronto. More information is available in the show notes. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. And on today's episode, we have Sharon Avery, who is president and CEO of Toronto Foundation. Toronto Foundation is one of 191 community foundations in Canada. It's a registered charity, uh, manages about $400 million in assets, and uh, really is sort of one of those bedrock pillars of our community in Toronto. And I sort of often like to say it's one of the best resources that no one knows about. So I'm really excited to have Sharon on the podcast to really expose people to, you know, those of us in Toronto, our community foundation. And if you're not in Toronto, uh, you likely have a community foundation in your community and uh, really just want to get people aware of what they're doing. So Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. I'm excited to have you. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So I hope you're ready for a, a fast conversation. But can you give everybody an introduction in your words? What is Toronto Foundation and the Community Foundation sort of as a whole? What a great first question. And um, I'm so excited about talking about this best kept secret in the city. So Toronto Foundation, as you said, is part of a family of community foundations. Um, There's, in fact, almost 2,000 community foundations in the world. It's an American invention. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio, in 1914, started the first community foundation in response to changing times, disrupted times. The Industrial Revolution was booming. There was this new invention This new financial tool, the endowment fund, um, was an innovation back in the early 1900s. Big philanthropy was just starting. Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Foundation were all establishing themselves. All the Ivy League schools and hospitals and academic institutions were establishing these massive endowment funds for the first time. And a group of male philanthropists from Cleveland said to themselves, All these big institutions, these big philanthropists are looking out in perpetuity. Who's looking out in perpetuity for the city? Poverty was on the rise. Urbanization was on the rise. Globalization was ahead on the horizon. And these guys said, we need to have a plan for philanthropy. We need a plan for poverty in our cities. And that was the initial concept of a community foundation. And so most community foundations in the world are quite old. They're sort of 80 to 100 years old. The oldest in Canada is in Winnipeg, which turns 100 in 2021. Toronto Foundation, like many things in Toronto, 
No one in Toronto thought the city needed a community foundation for a really long time. Though the conversation started in the 50s, started by Fraser Deacon, we really didn't get established in Toronto until 1981. In the grand scheme of community foundations, we're like an adolescent. We're just about to turn 40, but when you're talking about a compound interest environment, as you well know, David, age matters. And so we're not the biggest community foundation in the country, even though we're sitting in the richest city. And so uh, I took over in this job a couple of years ago, I guess it's two and a half years now, I've been the CEO, and brought into this conversation, I think, a desire to redefine our role. One of the later community foundation inventions happened in the 60s, which is the donor-advised fund. We're built on endowment funds, but the donor-advised fund is this really neat alternative to setting up a private foundation. And community foundations were the first in the country to really proliferate and expand the idea that individuals could set up their foundations within their community foundation structure. And so you mentioned our assets, which are actually just about to hit 500 million, which is wonderful. But we also, more importantly, are the hosts to 500 families and individuals who have established donor advised funds with us. So we are really a neutral center of philanthropy for those folks. And you and your wife included in that number. Yeah, so my introduction to Toronto Foundation, it's interesting because, and so I sort of say this is one of these best resources that no one knows about, and maybe it was because I didn't know about it, but overwhelmingly when I talk to people and I'm talking about it, I'm introducing it to them for the first time. And it was, you know, I had been living overseas and came back and was interested in sort of becoming more aware about what was going on in my own city, which I had been oblivious to my entire upbringing. And an industry friend had said, you know, you have to get in touch with Toronto Foundation. They just have their finger on the pulse of what's happening in the city and know where the needs are. And so that was sort of my introduction and it was bang on. I haven't run across another organization that has such a sort of cast such a wide net and sits in a neutral position where you can sort of really give genuine kind of objective advice and feedback to people on where is their need, where are their great organizations doing great work across the city. And so as somebody who's trying to do something positive, it's what an incredible resource. Wow, this exists and they're happy and willing to work with people that provide this feedback. So that's sort of at a high level what you're mission is, I'm guessing, right, is to make Toronto a stronger, better city for everyone. It is. And to do that through our community of philanthropists. And I always say we're a charity, but we're not a cause. Um, We are the neutral center of philanthropy. And so we can give advice and connect philanthropists to great organizations in meaningful ways. You know, one of the data points that I constantly remind people of is that in this country, 66% of all donation revenue in this country go to only 1% of the charities. And the power of a community foundation is that, in fact, we work with hundreds and hundreds of the smaller organizations that are doing the heavy lifting on the intractable problems in the city. And they really are connected to the intractable problems that this country faces, whether that's poverty or housing or gender related or LBGTQ or You know, the great thing a community foundation does in terms of serving philanthropy is we raise the voices of of organizations that often are overlooked because, you know, I really think at the end of the day, we want to shift and redefine what philanthropy is. 
I think um, we've professionalized fundraising to such a great extent in this country that that is one of the reasons that 66% to 1% statistic exists. And I've worked for some of these big organizations and fundraised for them. And so I'm well aware of what that's all about. And and many of the big institutions that raise the most money in this country have put Canada on the map. I'm not for a second suggesting they shouldn't be supported. You need to support your alma mater. If a hospital saved the life of your parent, I completely understand why you want to donate to them. What we want to do is encourage our philanthropists to go beyond the obvious and to go beyond the personal. You know, I think that increasingly the next generation of philanthropists are really interested beyond the things that have changed their lives. They're saying to themselves, there seems to be still a lot of need out there that I don't understand. There's complex issues I don't understand. Where can I go to learn um, with like-minded people about the issues I want to understand and I want to engage in? And then from that understanding of those issues, how do I choose the organizations that are solving those problems? I think when we hit our stride as a community foundation, that's when the most beautiful things happen, is when we actually connect. Um, we turn the light bulbs on for our philanthropists about, I will, we should really take a minute, uh, David, to mm-hmm. talk about that word. because I, I, I was just going to ask you about that word, yeah. <laughs> That's um, you know, I think we have a lot of conversations here about, and my staff will say, why do we have to use that word? It, because I think we want to redefine that word, you know, and the original meaning of philanthropy is support of humanity. And I feel like we are at a time in the world where we often feel we're losing our humanity. And I think it's one of the reasons I insist on using that word, but our fund holders, those that we serve in helping them distribute their giving, the beautiful moment is when they have this realization that they can actually get involved in the housing crisis. So there are ways in and that they can get involved in the issues of of truth and reconciliation, or they can get involved in really complex, sometimes awkward, difficult conversations that need to be had in order for people to step into some of these places that they can see need their help, but they don't know what the entry point is. And we're really there to open that door. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot to uh, unpack there. So I love, and maybe this is not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I love the brashness of, it feels a little bit like, no, we're going to take that word back. Thank you. And it's been distorted. And I think people have maybe misconceptions about what a philanthropist is and does and what it looks like. I think the typical images it conjures is, you know, wealthy white males in tuxedos at big black tie affairs, giving out huge checks and, you know, you get getting sort of positive press and exposure because of it and hobnobbing with other elites. And I love the idea of sort of that can be an aspect of philanthropy, but that's not what it's supposed to be all about. Uh, and let's take that word back um, and own it. I love that. Um, I think it's a big uphill battle to fight because a lot of people, I think, still it'd be a hard image to break for people. And I'm interested, I, I want to just touch on the fact that, you know, this is a podcast about impact investing. And so people may be wondering, well, why are we talk here, sitting here talking about philanthropy? I'd like to know how I can answer that, but I'd like to know your thoughts on that. I mean, one of the aspects is the fact that Toronto Foundation is making its first official foray into impact investing. I know it's not the first time you've, you've done any, but it's become more of an official launch. But maybe talk a little bit about that and how that ties into definition of philanthropists. Excellent. So where to start? I would say that it goes actually back to our roots in endowment funds. You know, when you 
are living in times that change dramatically, almost minute to minute, in terms of what's going on in the world. The notion of investing your funds in perpetuity feels a little, you know, I'm driving in this morning listening to the climate change conversation on the radio and people wondering if the earth's going to be here in a hundred years. And so how is endowed funds relevant? Well, there are a number of ways I could make that argument. But what I would say is the other big question that's now being asked about all these endowed funds that exist in the world, um, and community foundations hold about almost $6 billion in endowed funds across the country. The big question we as a group of organizations started asking ourselves about 10 years ago was, what more good could we be doing if we could utilize those endowed funds? And that was, so impact investing, which for many of your listeners may still be a newish concept, is not new to community foundations. It's new to Toronto Foundation. We've only been in the space for about three years, but many of my peers and colleagues have been in this space for a decade. And it is the challenge of taking the endowed funds that we have and making them work even harder for good. And it's a totally natural place for us to be. What is really interesting to me, being kind of new to the family of community foundations, is A, that it took Toronto a while to be on board, but also that even talking about them attracts a whole new generation of philanthropists. Because What we're finding, and some of my best social impact investors are some of my older, whiter philanthropists because it's new space. They've been investing their dollars in the market for years, and they've been philanthropists for years. And this is actually this wonderful space in between where they can have, they can use all the muscles they flex when they're in venture capital or when they're assessing and doing due diligence and the muscles they flex when they're granting coming together in this middle space. And so we put a pool of 10, well, it'll actually soon be 11.6 million together to be impact investing. Um, We've made about eight impact investments over the last two years. Um, We're easing in, you know, it's a fascinating thing for board members to go from granting to investing, but looking for social impact measurement has been really interesting, but it's really wonderful space. And so increasingly, when I go back to these issues and conversations we want to start with our fund holders, um, in this neutral space, social finance is a big kind of lesson plan now in terms of our donor education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I know Hamilton Community Foundation has been one of those sort of early leaders in Canada um, doing impact investing and has some really great work that they've done and great thoughts in this space. What I find really interesting is, and this is where you're just sort of drawing, again, that very clear link between, you know, why are we talking to a community foundation about impact investing and what do the philanthropy and impact investing have to do with one another? I see them as just an entirely one spectrum as opposed to discrete activities. You know, when you grant or donate, you get zero financial return, but arguably and probably in most cases, if the money's being used effectively, much more of a, a social or an impact, re- environmental or impact return and zero financial return and all the way to venture philanthropy where you allocate money and you get that principal back, but no return on it all the way to impact investing where there's a return associated to get your capital back plus a return. And in a lot of those cases, I think your impact is not as high, but you're getting a financial return. And so that's 
the trade-off is that you get financial sustainability. Yes. Um, and so if you view it from that perspective, it all of a sudden starts to make a lot more sense that they're not discrete activities and you can be more creative about how you allocate your capital. So uh, I'm curious for your feedback on this. You know, I know a lot of foundations are only just starting to hear about not just community foundation, but foundations just across the board are starting to hear about impact investing the first time. Impact investing requires you to start unlearning a lot of the traditional lessons you learn in finance around risk and return and the fact that you can do some good in the world and generate a return, that that's actually possible. And so I know I had to unlearn a lot of those preconceived notions that I had. When you're sort of thinking about that and you say, oh, well, what are the risks? And this is new and this is scary. If you view them as discrete activities, that's right. It seems scary. It's new. What if we lose our investment? The alternative, though, is to grant the money and you will definitely get no financial return. So when that's what your sole financial activities have been up until this point before you start impact investing, why is it such a scary thought that you might make an impact investment that potentially returns nothing when all of your activities have only ever resulted in no financial return? You should be, well, we might get our money back. And in a lot of cases, the risk is overdone. It's just an uncertainty with this is new for us and not knowing. I think this is a very interesting question, and I would say that this is part of the uniqueness of community foundations. So your argument is absolutely sound for an individual. It's absolutely sound for a private foundation with a sole, like a single stakeholder who is risking. The only challenge we have, and it's one of the reasons our current portfolio, although I'll talk a little bit about our new social impact investment fund, which we're just launching, but Our current portfolio is 100% made up of Toronto Foundation-owned assets that we can afford to lose, in quotations. Um, Our challenge as a community foundation, I've mentioned we have 500 fund holders. I also, the organization holds the assets of 40 charities, Mm -hmm. including the United Way's Endowment Fund, which is enormous, and a federal fund from the Pan Am Games. So... So I feel great arguing to my board your argument about loss, because it's what we do everywhere else. We cannot lose those assets. Yeah, They are sustaining other organizations and other vulnerable communities. And so that's one of the filters for us. But I mentioned, you know, we're just launching our first social impact investment fund. It's a version of a donor advised fund, but it'll feel a little bit more like a donation to people because they'll be putting their funds into a permanent endowment that will then, that capital will be then flowing into our social impact investment pool. What we're hoping is that it is a way for newcomers to the space to test social impact investing in a safe way. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, like you know, in the conversations we're having with some of our fund holders, they're like, oh, this is interesting. I could do a $50,000 social impact investment fund with Toronto Foundation it would last forever. It would continue to cycle. I don't get the decision-making on that fund, but I get the investment portfolio that I might choose to invest alongside of in addition to myself. It's almost like you could use it to safely, in a less risky environment, test the notion of investments, get access to the due diligence. And a couple of our folks want to you know, have their hands like in it but they want to dabble first. And so we're going to experiment the pilot this year with a fund um, that we're just about to launch in the next couple of weeks. 
It'll have matching money, by the way. So if people are interested in a match, their fund can double in size as soon as they sign up, up to, I think we have $820,000 in matching money. Let's unpack that a little bit because, you know, I think most people are probably not familiar with what a donor donor advised fund is. And then I've got questions about that. So a donor advised fund, I want to pause here because I think what often happens is people hear terms, they think they know what they mean, they're not quite clear, but nobody ever wants to stop and say, oh, what's a foundation? And like, because you feel like you should know what that is and you're embarrassed to admit. And I've been in finance my career and I, you know, until I really started to dig my head into this space and understand foundations, I had the loosest sense of it. But what's the benefit of a foundation? Why would somebody set one up? And then we can sort of contrast that with what's a donor advised fund and how, what benefit that brings. So, um, you know, a lot of folks hit a certain age and stage or they have a massive liquidity moment. They sell a business, they inherit a lot of money and are advised by their professional advisor to look for tax savings. And often that frankly, is when uh, donor-advised funds come forward or the idea of setting up a personal foundation. The private foundations, there are some crazy number, like 40,000 in Canada, and they are wonderful tools for philanthropy. Lots of families do it as a way to engage themselves and the next generation in philanthropy. It is often the first piece of advice an advisor will give is, oh, you should start a private foundation. I would say you always want to consider the alternative, which is a donor advised fund, depending on who you are. The challenge with a a private foundation, one of the biggest challenges, other than the cost and the time you have to put into it and the tax auditing and all of the the work that goes into running basically a charitable foundation, is it's not very private. And so one of the first things we'll suggest to folks when they're comparing is just to understand your sense of privacy, because when you set up a private foundation, everything is public. Every donation you make, the size of your assets, et cetera, it's all publicly available. A donor-advised fund exists usually in institutions. I mentioned the community foundation started them, but in fact, all the banks offer them as well. Many wealth managers now offer them. You know, We're not the only place to go for a donor-advised fund. Think of it like a philanthropic bank account. And there are a few types. You can have permanence. You can have a permanently endowed donor advised fund. And that type of fund is very particular in that you must not touch the capital after it's been invested. You can only give away 3.5% a year to charity from that fund. However, the benefits of that fund, of course, that exist forever. Lots of people like them um, for names, their family name to continue on in perpetuity. But also because after about 25 years, you'll have given away more um, from uh, built off the capital of that fund through your 3.5% than exists in the fund now. And so over time, over 50, 100 years, you'll have given away many, many more times than you initially put into that fund. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes it powerful. But there are other kinds of donor advised funds you can do. So we call that our savings account. Um, the you can have a checking account donor advised fund in that version as you fill it up and you empty it and you fill it up and you empty it and you use that for your sort of annualized giving activities. Uh, there's a mm. spectrum of funds, but those are at the two ends of the spectrum. The spectrum, right? Interesting. Sorry, I'll just quickly yeah, say please. that a social impact investment fund. What we're proposing would be not permanently endowed, but it would be permanent because. In social impact investing, you can't guarantee that you'll never touch the capital because it could be lost mm-hmm. in, in a bad investment. 
and it won't have granting ability. It'll just grow based on the impact investment returns. So it'll grow over time, but it, at least in the first three or four years of this pilot, we won't be offering granting money off the top of it the way you would a traditional donor advised money. You might at some point, but for now, there's no plan. Yeah, I think we you need want to see how the investments perform and whether you can yeah. sustain yeah. the capital. The benefit of that is that the investments themselves you're making are having a positive impact on the world while you're not granting. And then once you've got sort of this test period of four or five years or whatever that is, and you feel like, oh, wait, we can sustain this capital. We've got an ability to start to grant. You can figure out at what level or potentially, no, we can't and it's not feasible and we continue to just use it as an investment vehicle for making impact. Yeah. And as I said, we're hoping because we're, you know, we keep talking about redefining philanthropy. We are really hoping this is a safe entry point for those that are curious about social finance, but not prepared or feel adept. As you say, there's so much unlearning you need to do to get into Mm -hmm. social impact investing. We've had the exact same experience with our committee that does all the due diligence and makes the decisions of our board. Um, that we feel there's a space right now, certainly, to introduce this as a safe and easy open door to social finance that then people can learn along with us and potentially do more themselves, which many of our fund holders don't do all their philanthropy with us. They do some of their philanthropy with us and use us to learn from. I'm anticipating the same experience for social impact investing. How can we proliferate the conversation? How can we mainstream this conversation about social impact investing in a really safe experimental space that then our fund holders can perhaps go off and do their own thing with the co-powers and the habitats and the um, new commons, you know, all these places we've invested and they can see how that works. They can feel safe about it and then perhaps step in in parallel themselves. That's great. So if you have you know, fund holders with Toronto Foundation who already have funds, are they basically allocating additional capital to potentially this impact fund or taking some of their existing donor advised fund assets and allocating it to the fund? How does that? It's a great question. And I actually think it comes back to something you made me think of in a comment you made earlier, which is we're constantly encouraging our fund holders to think of their philanthropy as a portfolio. and so not just 100% to big institutions, but diversifying their granting, but then also in the fact that they don't just, like we don't just push permanence as a donor advised fund. Most of our fund holders have two funds, one permanent, one flow through, Mm -hmm. you know, one that they're checking and their savings account. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, a lot of our fund holders are looking and saying the stuff we have in temporary funds, can we move them into permanence in social impact investing? That's probably the most natural way people are moving into this space. Okay, awesome. So that brings me to, I guess, a, a question around, you know, you've, I think, alluded to it a few times, the idea that in our city, the traditional views of what a philanthropist looks like. Yeah, I saw you tweet not too long ago about reading uh, Decolonizing Wealth, and there are this idea behind Vision 2020, which is a really exciting program that Toronto Foundation's pioneering. Um, I'm a part of, I was super excited. You had me at hello when Anil first started talking to me about that program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So one of the other ways, I keep talking about donor education 
And mm -hmm. the fact that our current experiences in philanthropy are very, can predominantly be very traditional. I ask you for money for something I want to do with it as a charity and I take it and I do that thing and I say thank you. And thank you takes on very many forms. It can get very fancy. Um, depending on the size of your investment, it can involve a lot of recognition. These are the very traditional forms that philanthropy tends to take predominantly in Canada right now and in many different countries. One of the things that you talked about as the role of a community foundation is being in touch with the issues in the city. And so we have this incredible annual report, the Vital Signs Report, that takes the temperature of the quality of life in Toronto and highlights the areas there are gaps. And so that was one of the things that attracted me to this organization when I was looking at the job that came up to be president. And because I think that the gap in this country in philanthropy is in education. And so when I was in my last life at UNICEF Canada, you learn a lot when you work in international development, as you know, David, and uh, in terms of your, uh, your relations in the international space. And at the time, I really sat with my team and said, we need to find ways to help donors learn about the big complex global issues that are out there. And so we developed a model at UNICEF that was a learning journey for donors. It wasn't an investment in a capital project with a big thank you. It was join our organization, go on a multi-year educational experience. And my first iteration was on maternal newborn child health and be with like-minded philanthropists and learn together and deeply understand the problems of the world and how your money is, is helping them. And so when I was coming to Toronto Foundation, I thought, you know, it's what a great setup. We've got the Vital Signs Report is 16 years old. It's been proliferated around the world. 18, 86 community foundations around the world do Vital Signs Reporting now. What a great basis for creating education for donors on complex issues, the issues that don't tend to touch the, the affluent. And so the first thing we tried was Vision 2020. This idea that we would take a group of next generation philanthropists, really redefining the meaning of philanthropy together on a two-year learning journey. And we partnered with Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities Movement because Toronto had just been named a resilient city. So you can see kind of the global, local connection because we are the most diverse city in the world. We have to be connecting our local issues to the global issues. They are absolutely connected to each other. And I think it's that richness that the next generation is really interested in talking about. They're willing to step into some pretty awkward conversations about the fact that, you know, I grew up affluent white and I am living in the most diverse city in the world where 35% of the population is living on $20,000 a year or less household incomes. You know, most of our next geners are actually living in the top one, two percent in the city. And there's a huge gap between those two spaces. And so we wanted to create a journey for philanthropists to say, how do I get in touch with the parts of the city I don't visit? How do I meet people who are living the realities of the intractable problems as an equal, not in a power dynamic where I am rich and you are poor and I have the solutions to your problems? but in a relationship building, listening, 
sharing the power scenario. And then some deep self-analysis, right? What are my biases? Um, what don't I understand? Um, what do I do automatically that is actually insulting to certain populations? Having the awkward conversations. And so all of these things make it sound very complex, but as you know, it's a journey. It's a journey we're on together. And we put the word out to a group, including yourself early on. You were one of our early adopters, David. Thank you to say, is this something that interests you? There are a lot of next-gen groups in Toronto, but a lot of them are highly social, highly cause-specific. And would you be interested in meeting a group of like-minded people to talk about a wide variety of issues, including some self-reflection, your role in this power dynamic and this gap in the city, and doing it for two years, and establishing a permanent endowment to kick it off? a permanent commitment to philanthropy in Toronto to start. And we had a huge response, such a huge response. We actually had to cut it off because we wanted this to be a fairly intimate experience. So we have about 115 young people. And the best part of this group, perhaps, is that they look like the city of Toronto. They're the most diverse group of, of individual donors I've ever worked with. I'm, I know that's the same for Anil, my, uh, our director of uh, philanthropy here at the foundation and we're so proud of that. But the other neat thing that happens when you actually open the doors and bring a group like that in is that they start defining what they want to learn about. And so we only really mapped out the first six months of the journey and then kept going back to the group saying, okay, what next? What else do you wanna learn? Who else can we introduce you to? You know, How can you get a deeper understanding of how city works? How can you get a deeper understanding of these issues. And then we're all also as a staff team trying to deeply learn ourselves. And so you mentioned the book, Decolonizing Wealth. I mean, I read it in about 48 hours. I could not put this thing down. It's a beautiful read, such an important kind of look in the mirror at the role of philanthropy in the world. I'm just into another book on um, equality you know, the challenge with kind of trying to create a more equal world is that philanthropy shouldn't have to play a role in that. Philanthropy is a power dynamic unto itself. And so how do we come to a comfortable place around that? I think, you know, these are the awkward conversations we want to have with folks, you know, understanding your white privilege and that it's not as easy, that, that our identity is way easier because it's been the mainstream and how hard it is for our friends and peers and colleagues and neighbors who don't um, identify easily and publicly about their backgrounds and cultures and issues and religions and all of the various things that make up who we are. So I'm going on and on, David, but that's what's so exciting. And so we're increasingly clear that this journey is going to actually redefine Toronto Foundation. This journey we're on with Vision 2020 is actually helping us say, is it age that defines the group we want to work with? Or is it a mindset? Would our next cohort of Vision 2020 be age limited? Or would it just be mindset mm -hmm. defining? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, again, oh boy, so much to unpack, and I'm not going to get to all the things I wanted to say to you and ask about. But so just make a little more explicit, like you mentioned the diversity of this group, and you're now kind of touching on it around 
is age the real issue here or is it a mindset? And beyond the mindset, talking about the diversity of this group, like if you looked at the demographics of your traditional fund holders and then you compare that to the demographics of the Vision 2020 group, I think they're radically different and by intentionally, right? Like the age group was sort of like an indicator for, hey, if our threshold is always to deal with this certain wealth level, and these minimum investments, then it's going to draw us towards a traditional white male audience. And how do we diversify? Well, one of the barriers is financial. So how do we sort of lower that bar a little bit to make it more inclusive? Why is that important to you that it be a diverse crowd? And, and maybe touch on this idea of you've talked a lot about lived experience. So I think that it's our responsibility. I mean, we are called the Toronto Foundation. So when 51% of the city wasn't born here, then I think we're doing ourselves and our city a disservice not looking like the city looks. That is on our board. We've set diversity goals for our board. And diversity isn't just cultural. It's age. It's sexual orientation. There's such a broad range of diversity. You know, it's interesting. We're just going through our first major strategic planning process in about a decade. We put a small plan in place when I first arrived, but this one is the big one. And literally, we've been having this internal big conversation about how far do you take a diversity mandate? How far do you take an equity mandate? What's the difference between those two? What is inclusiveness versus diversity versus equity? You know, there are three different but interconnected ideas and which one do we stand for first like so this is mm -hmm. so going back to your question the great thing about this group is they truly are broadly identified i think we live in a city that deserves that the other piece i had this stunning moment i think i was three months on the job and i was presenting vital signs it was real initiation to arrive and have to deliver vital signs to the city about three weeks after i started and so about, you know, in the, the kind of months that followed, I was constantly doing these speeches, which isn't really my thing. I don't do it so much now, but I did it in those first months because it's what had been done for years. And, and I did this speech at U of T and they didn't tell me, they asked me to do this keynote on vital signs and then they asked me to join a panel, but they didn't tell me that they'd invited each of the panelists to critique vital signs. Mm. Nice surprise. I'm always open to feedback, so it's fine, but it was a surprise. And so I did my speech and I sat down and this amazing woman who I'm now dear friends with, but I didn't know her at the time, Jay Pitter, who is a author and city like change maker. Like she's just this incredible person. She gets up to the podium. I'm sitting behind her so I can see that her hands are shaking. And I realize she's not nervous. She's furious. And she just let Toronto Foundation have it. She, first of all, she said, I'm shocked I've been invited to critique vital signs. I've been wanting to do this for years. You send out this big report on the quality of life in the city and you have all these experts and you've, you know, 16 years of experts and not a single voice of lived experience. And it was hugely pivotal moment for me as a leader, but I think for my whole team and for us to just like, you know, I come out of UNICEF where voices of lived experience is everything. Like when you're doing community development, you start with the community. You do not go in as an authority and tell people what's right and wrong. Right. 
and I hadn't even spotted it yet. Like it was not on my radar and it was so true. It was such a truth. It was such a look in the mirror and it was really the beginning of our, the kind of what I like to think of as our brave conversations that we started having with ourselves. And so it has become core to our future in terms of, you know, we're working with the city and a group called Connected Communities out in Scarborough on a champions program. The city's been running for years and we're going to start funding it and connecting all of our fund holders to those that are living in neighborhoods they rarely visit and listening and sharing. Jay reminded us the other night at an event that, you know, it's not about shifting power. It's not about listening well. It's about being willing to be uncomfortable and sharing our power with each other. Yeah, I love, uh, I love all that. Dave O'Leary from 2010 would be listening to this going like, what are they talking about these words? What do these things mean? Sort of like talking about equity and diversity and the difference between them and how you're prioritizing those things, talking about privilege. And it really is a bit of, for me, an eye-opening experience, but a process. Like it's taken a, a long time and I've understood it deepening layers and I'm still on a journey and I've got lots to learn. The more I'm learning, the more I realize I still need to know. But I, you know, that's, that's been a real lesson for me is just that power of like realizing who's at the table, who has a voice here, are we getting all of the perspectives? And you just oftentimes, maybe especially as probably, especially as a white man, you don't often stop to think about that. I'm an opinionated person. I also like to talk. And so, yeah, right. I've got an opinion on this and I'm going to share it. And I'm not stopping long enough to think about what voices are not being represented. And so this sort of constant reminder of, wait a minute, you don't have all the answers. You've got one perspective. There is no one reality. The reality is only ever viewed through a lens. And that lens is colored by your background experiences, everything that makes up who you are. And so you, you can't possibly, there's a great sort of, Brene Brown does a great talk on empathy, not being sort of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and seeing the world through their eyes, because that's impossible. You can't take your own lenses off your eyes as much as you might hope to. Um, it's trusting that when somebody else tells you that the, how they're perceiving the world is what they're actually perceiving and experiencing and feeling and not doubting it and criticizing it. And so I love that. And so this sort of reminder that you need that other voice. I can't take the perspectives of somebody else. And the people in that situation are the best people to often come up with the solutions. And I'll, at the risk of talking too long on my, <laughs> on my own podcast, um, these people are not here to listen to me. There was a great experience I had through Vision 2020, which was these labs that are set up. And one thing I really want to commend Toronto Foundation for doing even beyond Vision 2020 are creating these great opportunities for fund holders and philanthropists and people who are interested to engage across the city. So it's little things like where you hold your events are not just, you know, in downtown core and in the lavish places. You're going out to other parts of the community that aren't as well connected, that people don't spend time in, giving them a chance to see that and interact with those communities, which is wonderful. And part of the Vision 2020 experience that I had with these labs where I went out in my case and everyone as part of this has had an opportunity to take part in at least one, um, is that we went up to Black Creek Community Center at Jane and Finch. And I was part of a lab where we were sitting around a lot of the community-based organizations came, so the heads of those came together at Black Creek to talk about how do they get more members of the Jane Finch community on boards of the community organizations that are serving those communities? And what are the barriers to those individuals to take board positions. I was in there for two hours and I couldn't have felt sort of more out of place, more out of my element, 
less equipped to have that conversation, to know less about that. I, I couldn't have known less about that conversation. And this is like a community I grew up, was born in Malton, and then kind of grew up in West Etobicoke. And like, it's not that far from Jane and Finch, yet it felt a world of difference to me. And I'd done some traveling internationally and been in some pretty, you know, impoverished places, but it's just a different aspect. It's a different set of circumstances. And it was a wild learning experience. And so little things like, you know, board meetings typically happen just to give some color and context to people like, because this all sounds still pretty fluffy, but very practical things like, okay, so when we hold board, when board meetings typically happen, it's usually after work. So it's 5, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. Well, what's a mother who's got kids going to do with her kids during this period where now we're having this board meeting and there's no daycare provided for them? Oftentimes, they're small community-based organizations, so there's no meal provided for them. Like, practically, how's that woman? She would like to be a part of this. She'd like to sit on that board. She wants to have a say. How's she going to do that? Because we're not providing for that. We're not thinking about that. So there was a whole bunch of other things that came up. I won't go into all the details, but it was a really powerful example. So there's no question there, but it's a real big kudos to you. And I think it's a really powerful testament to how Toronto Foundation lives out those values. Well, I think it also is a testament to the type of people who want to be a part of that kind of discussion. Mm. And I think there's more out there than we realize. And the thing that I've been most impressed with, with the Vision 2020 group is just the generosity, the commitment, like, you know, you have a tradition in philanthropy of waiting until you're in your fifties to do your philanthropy. There is like a, there's this sort of sense that I've graduated, you know, I've spent lots and lots of money on myself and my family. So now I can do my philanthropy. This group is like, I'm selfish. I want to start my philanthropy now. I am willing to give up things in order to be a part of this program because I know that I'm lucky. I want to be able to help others. And I'm constantly astounded. There's um, two sisters that set up their foundation as part of Vision 2020. They set a mantra of wanting to support the underestimated. You know, and I think Mm -hmm. that comes to the core of what people in Vision 2020 are starting to realize is this huge myth between the wealthy and the poor that the poor simply don't work hard enough. But what you know, David, because you've met so many of these folks now, is that they work harder than we do for almost nothing, right? Like they're the struggle of poverty, the multiple jobs, the sacrificing of time with their children, you know, the juggle in, you know, apartment blocks where there's a woman who will take the kids, you know, at six in the morning so that the woman can go off to her first job. Like the stuff, the sense of community, the social capital that exists in those neighborhoods is rich and profound. The assets they bring to the table are incredible. And our assets, frankly speaking, are strictly financial, but they bring so many rich other assets. And if if we can have this cohort come to the end of the experience appreciating that, I think we'll be setting up the next generation of philanthropy to be more powerful, but more willing to share that power. That's the ultimate goal. Yeah. Oh, man. There's so much. There's so many things I want to talk about here. Oh, this is really tough for me. So I do want to talk about the social idea of social capital in the report. There's two other things that are slipping my mind now, but just very briefly, and maybe you won't want to sort of talk too much about this, but I've just personally thought a lot about this idea of sort of 
traditional philanthropy and kind of market world approaches, which is like my first act is I may amass tons of wealth. I mean, it's all for me. And I, once I've you now 50, 60 years old and I've got tons of money and power and influence, then I'm going to use it to do some good in the world. And this idea of, well, wait a minute, that doesn't have to be the way that it's done. And maybe you think about your other sources of capital that you can direct to making an impact um, sooner rather than, and so what's the better approach? Or is it just, well, whatever works best for whoever that is. And and just as we were talking now, I think one of the disadvantages that I maybe, and I, because I maybe was on that track of like, oh, amass as much wealth as I can for myself, and then I'll worry about doing good later. And I've truncated that. I cut that short and made a pretty radical shift in my career and trajectory. And so I often think about that, like that dichotomy between those two and would I have been better off going on the other route? And I, I'm wondering if, if you want to give feedback on it, this idea that potentially one of the downsides of a world that is the first 40 years or 50 or 60 years of my life is just about me. It's kind of hard at that point to then just radically shift your worldview, your mindset. It's not impossible. But you've got way more unlearning to do, I think, at that point. You're used to a system, a hierarchy, a colonial patriarchy, maybe being a little too flippant with these words, but that trying to learn that. I'll give you a great analogy. My parents are savers. They were born in a Depression era. They both believed in the, you know, like, get lots of education and then build financial security because they didn't have tons of it growing up. And they spent their whole lives being very cost conscious. And now in retirement, they have a hard time spending that money because they spent their whole lives saving it. And they were very responsible. It's wonderful. And they're not cheap or miserly, but like they should be spending more of it than they do. And they still cut corners. And my mom was just out shoveling the driveway and hurt herself because you won't pay somebody to do it. And like, come on, like, you know, so you can't just flip a switch. You say that I'll yeah. just do that then. And so I wonder if that's something you've thought about, if you have any feedback on. Well, there's some actual studies on how empathy drops the richer you get. Hmm. That's interesting. I think that's worth another conversation somewhere Mm -hmm. along the way, but there's absolutely proof that that happens. And I think that we see that. The other thing that I'm very concerned about, and I'm hoping that the social finance piece kind of brings this back, but one of the things we're shockingly seeing in Canada is a drop in donations and a drop Mm -hmm. in percentage of household income going to charity each year. Significant drop, especially from the wealthiest households. So we are seeing that the average percentage of household income that the wealthy, and wealthy, like I'm talking household incomes of $500,000 a year or more, um, are averaging around 1.3%. 1.3%. Like think of the old days, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the tithe you know, yeah. to church was 10% of household income per year was supposed to go to charity. It's now at 1.3. Now, if you look at the household incomes of $50,000 a year or less, they're giving 2.6% wow. to charity annually. So, you know, there's a, a set of data to be broken down in terms of what is going on there. You know, I think... There was a study Imagine Canada did a a couple of years ago um, interviewing self-declared giving on an average of household incomes of $500,000 to $5 million of $2,300 a year to charity. There's something wrong there. And it's partly wrong with the sector. Like I'm not just pointing, I'm not trying to shame. I'm just saying what we need to create different entry points for people to engage at all ages 
not just money, but money is a, just a lead indicator for me mm-hmm. of the lack of engagement. You see volunteer hours going down. You see people are giving less time, less money, less, what is it, time, talent, and treasure. They're giving less to the sector. And I'm not clear, are they tired of it? You know, I think there's lots of people who are very affluent, who feel financially insecure because they aspire to more and more. I think this consumer-based society feeds that. And so there's a lot going on. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons as a community foundation, we have to reinvent the way things are done. We have to disrupt patterns. We have to have these sort of awkward conversations not because we want people to feel bad, but because it's so engaging. Like Mm -hmm. philanthropy can be so much fun. And it's such a great way to share values with your children. So often parents are saying to me, how do I engage the next generation in philanthropy? It's important to us and I want it to be important to them. Well, they're, you know, we're trying to create exciting and interesting doorways to that. Great. That's awesome. So I'm mindful of time. I'm going to maybe end with a couple questions. I'd like to talk about the social capital report. I think of that as the, you've called it social capital. It's a much trendier word. I think of it as the power and value of community. My first experience with that, really eye-opening experience was in Africa and in Sierra Leone in particular, but I'd seen it in many countries and subsequently in my kind of travels through Africa. The sense of community there is so radically different. Now, just digress with a very short story, but I was doing my very first experience in any emerging country or developing country was in Sierra Leone. It was a volunteer trip through World Vision Canada. I just you know, was shadowing the amazing work that they were doing in a lot of these remote villages with smallhold farmers. And the local World Vision staff, most of whom are Sierra Leonean, said, hey, like towards the end of my time, like you're in finance. Can you give us a little talk about you know, money and finances and maybe pass on some tips? And I said, well, I thought to myself, oh boy, what am I going to tell these people about finance? I was working in finance at the time and investments, and I help people who have money already invest in functioning markets to make more money. You know, this is very far removed from what I know. And I spent some time learning about the various offerings from the banks and what investment options are available, what financial products exist. And of course, there's basically none. And so I just ended up having a talk. And I thought to myself, I'm just going to ask lots of questions and try to learn as much as I can. And if I can give them some tips or advice, then I'll try. And I thought the one thing I wanted to have in my back pocket was at least one piece of advice I could give them. I was realizing how out of my element I was. And so I gave this talk and I thought, I'm going to say, how many people are doing any sorts of budgeting and are you saving any money? And if not, you start saving even just the smallest amount of money. It's a good habit. It compounds over time. You forget about it and it grows. And I suspected, you know, there might be some pushback to, hey, what extra money? And I would say something clever like, well, the next time, you know, you get a raise, Pretend that you didn't get it and set it aside. So these are like behavioral mental tricks that you can play. And so that point in the conversation came and I said this and people laughed about saving extra money. And I said, why is that funny? And somebody stood up and the woman said, well, because the money we make doesn't belong to us. And I said, like, what? Why is that? And she said, well, for me, for instance, in my community, my entire community, I was the only one in my community to go to school and they all paid for it. So she wasn't begrudging. She's like, this money belongs to my community. I just stopped and I was like, oh, wow. wow. Like, I know precisely nothing, A, about this context, how little I know about this context, and B, their sense of community is so radically different. My mindset was, oh, I earned this money. I made this money for myself. This is mine. And I do it, you know, and theirs is my community. I couldn't have done this without them. And so, again, wasn't begrudging. And so that was very powerful. And it's, I think, a real good example of the support networks 
that people who truly live in community with one another is so radically different than ours in the developed world where we're getting more wealthy, we're moving further apart from one another, um, moving faster lives and spending less time with one another. So talk a little bit about the social capital report was meant to try to measure how much social or community power Torontonians have. Is that a fair? It is. It is. And it's interesting. It's a jargony kind of word, social capital. And really, it comes down to our relationships with our neighbors, our friends, our institutions, and our families. And we wanted to measure that in Toronto, an interesting petri dish of diversity, right? And so we asked ourselves, are we going to see stronger social capital in rich neighborhoods or in more vulnerable neighborhoods? Are we going to see, like, what is it all going to look like? And I think the team here is very proud of the work because it's the first time it's ever been done in an entire city. We've There have been elements of social capital measured all around the world in different health studies and things, but no one's ever done such a robust study in one big metropolitan city center. And that was a sort of a moment of pride for us. And the other thing we did is because we believe things are more fun together. It was a social capital experiment in itself that we had 11 funding partners working together to release this study. And the one thing that really got me, my attention personally, was one of the outcomes was clear that the people in the city with the highest quality of life, self-rated quality of life, were those who knew the most of their neighbors. And I'll tell you, I'm a bit of a neighbor snob myself. You know, I talk a lot during the day. I'm highly extroverted during the day and I get highly introverted at night. And I often, I'm always polite and pleasant, but I don't socialize. And so I threw a Christmas party this year on my street mm-hmm. for a few of my neighbors because I felt, how could I release this study and not make an effort? And the study really is so clearly says, you know, we are getting increasingly disconnected, but those who connect are happier. They have more life satisfaction. They feel more a part of their communities. They live longer. Like there's so many connections between our sense of isolation versus connectedness in all respects to our mental health, to our physical health. And so we felt this was an important study. And so now we're asking ourselves, how can we grant or invest or use our groups like Vision 2020 to continue to build social capital in Toronto where it's weakest. And so that's our next big challenge. But this study is just the beginning, you know, because it suggests that Toronto has solid social capital. But my question to the team, not being a researcher myself, was, well, how do we really know when no one else has done the study? So we're hoping to see other cities in Ontario roll this out. And actually, because I'd be very curious, the difference between an urban social capital score and a rural social capital score? Are they more connected? Or is this breaking of social cohesion that we are absolutely seeing in the United States? Because I have a suspicion that equality levels are connected to social capital levels. And Canada's still okay. I mean, the U.S. has got the highest inequality in the world right now. It's, It's off the charts. And you can see what's happening there. And we do not want that happening here. So part of our social capital interest was also just to sort of start measuring in advance of what might come. It's really, really interesting. And I love that you've kind of pioneering that, the measurement of that, um, being more clear about how we define and measure that stuff. And just to tie again back to, because some of this conversation, I think, veers away from 
strict impact investing, but as you sort of view, how do you make an impact in the world on a continuum of what resources do I have and what returns can I generate from it? And those resources can be financial, they can be time, talent, or treasure, and the returns can be financial or social or environmental. And so as you do that, you realize this all becomes one big spectrum that is very, very related to one another. And so I'm just sort of tying that back for anybody who's listening and maybe wondering why we veered off on some of these conversations. You know, we'll wrap up shortly. And this might be my penultimate question, but I'm really interested in, I don't know if you've read Winners Take All, Anand Gerhardus? Yes, I'm reading it. It's okay. one of those that I pick up and put down because I can only digest. It makes yeah. me so sad. Yeah that I can only pick it up and put it down every so often. So I'm going between it and this equality book right now. Um, both of them. Heavy reading. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I've read, I think I'm I think I'm four or five chapters in. I'm so, and it's been really eye-opening for me. I'll probably end up talking about it a lot on this podcast. People may get sick of it, but uh, I'm really interested with this idea of like how we and I've experienced it as a part of Vision 2020 and consider myself maybe a small P philanthropist, but um, this idea that, that like, and it comes back to this first act, second act, I'm going to amass all this wealth on the system that allows massive inequality of wealth, that we have these outrageous billionaires and that some people, that they that could be allowed to happen, that there are outrageous billionaires where there are people who can't feed themselves on this earth is crazy to me. And how do we square this world where we say, well, yeah, but look, look at, we're going to now, you know, mass all, all these people who have done well off the system, we're going to then entrust them to make the decisions about how that money gets distributed into what causes when they're precisely the people who have the least experience understanding the problems. And they're probably the least qualified to make those decisions. Yet that's the system we live in. And how do we overthrow that and circumvent that? So when I look at Vision 2020, it's done, I think it's wonderful for all the reasons we talked about. But I'm still left with it, this feeling that like, so here I am, a white male who on the grand scheme of things in your world, I'm not among the wealthy, but in the broader global spectrum, I'm the ultra elite <laughs> and perpetuating the system of, well, I've made a, enough money that I can start to do some philanthropy. I'm making decisions about what causes are worthy of my money. And I really wrestle with that. I'm doing my best to learn, but I'm still really highly unqualified compared to a lot of other people who don't have the wealth that I do. But that I ultimately, after the end of the day, have to make a decision about who's going to make that decision. I have to relinquish that, and I don't know how to do that. Well, and I think you're wrestling with the same thing we're wrestling with. So this is something we were talking about this morning when we were doing our strat plan discussion. You can talk the talk, but what does walking the walk truly look like? One of the things we've been really clear with with Vision 2020 is the experimental nature of this journey and the fact that we don't actually have all the answers either. And that what we're looking for is a group of like-minded people who are willing to go on this journey, have these awkward moments, be reflecting in the mirror, who do we want to be and helping us figure out what those new structures need to look like. And I'm with you. I'm like, what does this look like? Are we suggesting to vision 2020 when you graduate and you're starting to grant from your fund? that you guys just like anyone who's willing take their available to grant, put it in a pool and hand it over to a group of folks from Rexdale to make the decisions and inform you. I'm being really simplistic here. I think that there's more to it than that, but is that what we're saying? Or are we putting that pool out to the entire city 
is some kind of digital platform that anyone can vote on where it goes or anyone can make their case and have money allotted in a really like hugely democratic process where you're democratizing your funds. Because at the end of the day, I still think that one of the challenges with philanthropy is you want it to be fun and exciting and feel good and fulfilling and but also feel that you're having impact. And so I think we are really on a journey to rebuild these structures. And I don't have the answer yet for you, David, but I'm open to all the suggestions. And I think the more fund holders we get working together and asking these questions and sitting with communities and bringing them into this conversation is really interesting. I'll give one example that I think is really interesting. It sticks in the back of my mind. I didn't attend this conference. One of my colleagues attended this conference in Hamilton on poverty. And it was 350 people in the room. She said in her 30-year career, she never had such a powerful experience because half the room was lived experience and half the room were experts. And often what happens, even those who are working at the grassroots level and who are the most in touch with Voice of Lived Experience often still meet in rooms alone. There's still a power imbalance. But she said, in this room, you had every table mixed up between the so-called experts and Voices of Lived Experience. And she said it changed the entire dynamic of the conversation in terms of you know, asset allocation and what was important and what wasn't important. And I think that's the future. And we want to be the convener of those conversations. Um, ultimately, you're going to make your decisions. But we want to try and influence your thought process. And the fact that you're already talking this way makes me feel that, I mean, you were already going down this road. I'm so glad we could you know, have you be a part of the journey. But the journey is not ending at the end of two years, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, we were having a conversation, a group of us, as part of the Vision 2020 around, you know, how do we start thinking about the first allocations we might make, grants we might make with the money. And one of the things that really surfaced in that conversation for me was I, we were talking about like, what are those, if we we're going to sort of come out and make a statement about the first lessons we've learned about philanthropy, because that's the idea behind this vision 2020 is take people on this learning journey around what good philanthropy is, where there's need in the city. And to me, it feels like the best first lesson we could come out with is like, hey, here's what we've learned about philanthropy. And it's that we know very little even after this learning journey, we've scratched the surface. And the outcome of that for me, I would love to be. And how, here's how we're passing, here's how I'm at least passing on or including voices of those who have, who are more, far more qualified than me to say how this money should be used and the voices of lived experience. So this idea of like handing this, democratizing the process, I love that. I'd highly encourage you to continue pushing down that road of, you know, I put my full weight and support behind that. I don't know how much that's worth, but uh, I love it. And that leads to the final question. If somebody's getting into philanthropy or is a philanthropist, if you could if you could make every philanthropist take to heart one lesson, one truth, what would that be? Oh, one. Only one? <laughs> I could give you five. All right. Uh, well give it doesn't have to be the only one, but well, uh, I'd say, what comes I, to mind? I think the shifting from what's touched you personally to what is mm-hmm. happening in the world that you want to get involved in Love is that. a big one. I think another one that we, you and I haven't talked about, which is probably another entire podcast, (laughs) is leverage. Mm. 
I'll talk about the Peter Monk investment in Toronto General, right? Which was enormous and fantastic yeah. for cardiology around the world. I totally believe that. Yeah. But imagine a funder with $100 million going to government and saying, let's really tackle the housing crisis in this city. And I want you to triple my $100 million. And I mean, you and I know it's still just scratching the surface, but it's like, how can we tackle the big things? How can I get people not only thinking of their money as their money, but leveraging it? Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing I've touched on today, and you've really articulated it beautifully, is seeing philanthropy as a portfolio and a spectrum. It isn't just money. It includes time and talent. It also includes social finance, that you can actually recycle your dollars. That philanthropy, I feel like I'm in conflict right now when I talk about philanthropy and democratizing, because maybe that's when I'll finally give up the word <laughs> mm -hmm. in terms of it really is, how is philanthropy social capital building? And in its truest, truest, most democratic sense. But this idea of thinking of it beyond just a grant to one organization, but rather a portfolio of activities you engage in to make your community better and to get to know your community better. So I love that response. Thanks, Sharon. If you given time, we'll, we'll wrap up. But if people want to visit Toronto Foundation, where do they find you? torontofoundation.ca. Come Great. see us. We are active on Twitter and Facebook as well. So please awesome. sign up for our newsletter, The Connection. We just would love to share more and more. Awesome. I'll post in the show notes links to the website, the social media, and um, the Vital Signs uh, social capital reports. Excellent. Awesome. Thank Thanks so much, Sharon. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.